3: Hi everybody and welcome to The Exchange on this Friday. Here's what's ahead. 431,000 jobs added in March and the unemployment rate falling to 3.6%. Is the economy on strong footing at the beginning of this Fed hiking cycle? We'll hear from one guest who says it's absurd to think the Fed raising rates will cause a recession. And he says forget the yield curve as an indicator. And we get some stock picks to think about before earnings season kicks in. Three buys and a bail coming up today. Uh, this one a little bit of an energy twist and a couple other provocative names, but first let's get to Dom Chu with our market numbers. Dom? the
4: market numbers are fairly stable, not very volatile on a day when you could have had that given a very big job support and the numbers that we did see. So, more on that, I'm sure, throughout the course of the show. However, if you take a look right now, at what's happening behind us, the SP 500 overall is looking to be in a tight trading range. We're up about relatively 18 points or so at the high, down 21 at the lows, so fairly range bound overall. So, you can kind of see is behind me. The Dow down about just about 34, 74 points, 34,604 the last trade there. Also watch what's happening, of course, with certain key parts of the market overall in terms of mega cap technology. Apple in particular is going to be a big focus after an 11 day winning streak. We are now down on a three day losing streak for that particular stock. Check that out here because it has been a big story. Apple has been one of those trades that people have been looking at as a place to buy the dip at. So an eye on that. And then on the other side of things, a quick word, because we're going to have much more on that very historic vote to unionize workers for Amazon in New York City, specifically at a large Staten Island warehouse facility. Amazon shares right now just about fractionally higher on the day. But still, keep an eye on that, because in Bessemer, Alabama, votes are still being contested, but they look like they could reject unionization there. And then check out what's happening with the 10-year, 2-year spread overall. If you take a look at that over the last couple of years, at the high... Kelly, it was a 160 basis point difference, roughly 1.6% between the yield on the 10-year Treasury note and then the two-year Treasury note. That is now narrowed to be, yes, negative six basis points, so a lot of attention. Even if you don't believe the two-year, 10-year is the most indicative guide, the, the theme is the same. 5s, 30s, 2s, 10s, whatever you want to look at, 3-month, 10-year, they're all flattening. And that's going to be a key for a lot of traders and investors going forward, Kel. Back over to you. We
3: will have more on that in a moment, Dom. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. So the more data points we're getting lately, the more we're starting to see the perils of running the economy too hot. Let's start with the jobs report this morning. Payrolls, we had another 431,000 jobs added in March. But the February number was revised up to 750,000. That is the single strongest month of job gains that we've had other than 2020 since 1983. The strongest month of job gains in What is that, 40 years? It's extremely unusual this late in a recovery as well when the unemployment rate is already back to where we were before the pandemic. So is this really sustainable? That's why it doesn't go in the good camp. It's kind of a bridge between good and bad. It's really, really strong. And with job demand this strong, it's no wonder that wages are surging. We saw this again in the average hourly earnings, up 5.6% again last month from a year ago. If it stays this high, there's no way inflation can fall back towards the Fed's target. We also saw more inflationary pressure in the manufacturing reports this morning. ISM's Prices Paid Index surged 11 points to a reading of 87. That's firmly bad. Uh, All 18 industries paying higher prices, higher prices this month than just last month. And those higher prices... Are they starting to bite into demand? We heard this from Gary Friedman, remember, in that classic earnings call at RH earlier this week. Well, the ISM survey also showed new orders leading gauge for markets in the economy slumping nearly eight points last month. That takes the reading back to May of 2020 levels. PCE prices, we know the story there as well. Inflationary pressures building across the economy. So some say this is all evidence that the Fed is now risking tightening too much into a slowdown. But is the slowdown they're doing by running the economy too hot? We'll ask our next next guest about that. Joining me now is Kathy Bustancic. She's chief U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. And Kathy, what do you think the picture is shaping up to be for the U.S. economy right now?
5: Well, thank you, Kelly. Uh, happy to be with you. Um, it, it's definitely a challenging environment for the Federal Reserve, as you outlined. Um, you have, you know, it's really a question of how high does inflation go and how high do interest rates need to go? And at the same time, uh, can they really? Tame inflation without really damaging the expansion in a very material way, um, and and having a hard landing as opposed to a soft landing. That that's really the critical question, um, and you know it, it's challenging. Um, I would say that you know in the camp that maybe they can pull this off. You do as you ran through the labor market is really hot. Um, while that's bad in one sense, wages are running five point six pre pandemic, was three percent. At the same time, you get a lot of income gains from that. So that could keep the consumer afloat here at least, you know, for at least for the next six to even 12 months. We're a little bit more worried about 2023, actually.
3: Sure. And that's a growing chorus because basically it seems like what's happening is that a growing portion of the nominal demand boom that's happening in the economy is being taken up by inflation as opposed to real demand. And if we keep going at these levels, could we see more and more of that nominal growth being fed through as higher prices instead of real demand. I mean, consumer sentiment's already sending that message. We're starting to see some concern from the uh, industry side as well.
5: Yeah, no, it, it, it's definitely a concern um, that you you have destruction of real demand, real aggregate demand. And, and again, most of the nominal gains are really inflation. Um, I, I think And with the consumer sentiment, it's quite interesting. Yes, the University of Michigan numbers have really taken a dive and they're concerning. And it's mostly related to the fact that inflation is uh, rising at a very quick pace. Um, At the same time, the consumer continues to spend. We saw that with the consumer spending data yesterday. Now, yes, in real terms, it was negative. But we are seeing that rotation away from goods to services, and we think that service growth will continue the next couple of months. The other point I would make is that the consumer, the Conference Board's consumer confidence report uh, was notably more upbeat, and that's because three of the five questions they ask consumers about the labor market. So it depends, you know, what you ask the consumer, that's how they'll tell you how they're feeling. Sure. And the most important takeaway here
3: is sort of as the Fed sifts through all of this. The markets reacted to the new orders number this morning as if it's dovish. You know, we've seen Treasury yields falling. Uh, we see that concern playing out. And does it mean that if they're sitting around a table, Fed officials should say, you know what? New orders are slumping. We better back off and wait and see how this plays out. Or would that be misinterpreting the data and what's going on here?
5: You know, I think uh, it's a great point, but I don't think they have the luxury at this point um, to really, you know, wait and see. Um, Inflation's running incredibly hot. It's gonna be approaching 9% come the spring, we think, early spring. And, And then they barely have started raising interest rates and haven't even shrunk the balance sheet yet. So I think, you know, you have to look for pretty aggressive tightening. You know, we're talking 50 basis points in May and June. Um, and even throughout the year, they probably get to um, at least 2 percent. They need to get to restrictive territory. Now, they will take notice of the open curve and they will take notice of the real economy, no doubt. But they really have to tamp down on inflation. And I, I don't think the supply chain problems, as we start with the surveys, are really they're just getting worse because yeah. of the war in Ukraine.
3: Absolutely. The prices paid are up. Supplier delivery is still uh, quite high. Kathy, thank you so much. It's great to have you on today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Kathy Bustjanczyk with Oxford Economics. All right. Speaking of that yield curve, we'll get to that in a moment. A quick programming note. Council of Economic Advisors Chair Cecilia Rouse will join Closing Bell at 3 p.m. Eastern time. That is a first on CNBC interview. We'll get her take on the jobs report. You definitely don't want to miss it. And my next guest thinks these recession fears at least in the near term, are overblown. He's not worried about that yield curve inverting. In his latest note, he says it borders on absurd that normalizing the easiest policy since the 1970s would cause a recession. He remains overweight U.S. equities, especially industrials and small caps, and underweight real estate. Joining me now is Barry Knapp. He is managing partner and director of research at Ironside's Macroeconomics. Barry, it's great to see you again. I mean, do you have the concern that we could see kind of a 2023 recession event because they're so far behind the curve? Or or does not even that bother you?
6: I'm not particularly concerned. I, I, as much as Chairman Powell may admire, admire Paul Volcker, there was a long, drawn out political process to get anywhere near the will to do what Volcker did in the, you know, starting in 1979 and on, but, um, yeah, I, I, I just think we have to step back and, and realize what the setting was. Now, I, I agree that the rate of change of policy tightening is a factor, and you can certainly shock um, the markets and economic activity, but I've been arguing that policy was actually counterproductive at its current setting. House prices going up one and a half percent per month twenty percent per year is a much bigger problem than a four versus a five percent mortgage market for real millennials forming households. We clearly had lots of malinvestment, money flowing into all sorts of speculative investments. All that cash sitting on bank balance sheets is impairing profitability and that itself could crowd out uh, credit creation much more than so called maturity. The transformation the inversion of the curve hmm. is likely to do so and of course inflation expectations are a problem uh, in the near term as well. Larry Summers has described those longer term expectations which are much lower relative to the near term expe- uh, expectations as a wasting asset. So it's important the Fed gets going. But I think we have to understand in the early stages of them normalizing policy. They're taking away counterproductive overly accommodative policy. They're not t- Coming anywhere close to tightening?
3: Absolutely. And what I like about your perspective is, you know, you have the macro, but you also translate it to markets. So why does that leave you bullish on U.S. equities when you see kind of the inflation picture that's out there? Why are you more bearish on real estate? Um, Maybe you just say, you know, these gains aren't sustainable. But I, I, you know, walk us through where you think investors should be positioned right now.
6: Sure. A lot of this does have to do with, and and real estate's a bond surrogate, right? But So a lot of this has to do with, with the yield curve and causation here. I've been arguing for quite a long time that real rates and nominal treasury curves have not been a good proxy for growth going all the way back to the conundrum back in 2004 and 2006. It's a little bit of a long story, but if you look at what's happened so far this year, The real driver of the nominal curve inversion has been a deep, deep inversion of the break-even curve. In other words, the market expects inflation to fall very sharply in 2023 and beyond. Hmm. That deepening of the inversion curve, correlation doesn't prove causation, but if you run the regression against that versus the nominal curve and the real rate curve versus the nominal curve, you see that the driver is this expectations that we're at or close to peak Inflation. So, if you think about it in that context, and you say, "Well, gee, equities rallied after the Fed took some steps towards regaining credibility after the March meeting, and yes, the curve flattened, rates went up, but um, credit spreads tightened." This is the kind. This is what you'd expect in an environment where the market's telling you, "Yeah, inflation's probably going to peak and get better." Now, I have a quibble with where it's going to wind up in 2023, but that's a story for another day. In the meantime, it's good news for equities. um, It's good news for the reflationary sectors and clearly bad news for the bond market, although it it appears at this point that the mortgage market and mortgage extension has probably burned itself out and the Treasury market will probably trade in a range. uh, I don't think it'll reverse the moves like it did in the second quarter of last year, but it'll probably get stuck in a range here.
3: Quick final question on the way out, Barry, for those who are selling the transports today because of the yield curve inversion or because of the ISM new orders miss, what would you tell them? Would you be a buyer?
6: I would. I would say if you look at the uh, market PMI survey compared to the ISM manufacturing survey, the ISM has much more international global companies in it. So the differential uh, is is the weak this overseas, the domestic demand story is really strong. <laughs> and you can see that in total hours work, the aggregate hours index. Uh, there's a lot of momentum there.
3: Oh, that is a very fun way to look at it. Glad we asked. Glad we had you on today. Barry, really appreciate it. Barry Knapp with Ironside's Macroeconomics. Still ahead, three buys in a bail with Danielle Shea. She has some energy plays today. Can you guess her bail? It's this stock down 15% this year, and she says it's not worth the price you pay for the product. We have the name and what she's buying instead. Plus, where have all the IPOs gone? The Renaissance IPO ETF down more than 20% so far this year. We're in the weakest quarter for public debuts in six years. How long should we expect the freeze to last? And as we head to break, here's a snapshot of the markets. Dow's down 92 points since the outperformer. NASDAQ down six-tenths of a percent. Russell's mostly flat, but just went negative as well. 236 on the 10-year. We're back in a moment.
7: We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere, the way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would, or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a one-series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at JohnDeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.
8: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
3: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. One of the market trends we've definitely been seeing this year is the one we're not seeing, not seeing the IPOs, the public offerings. They've come to a virtual standstill. Leslie Picker is here with more details. Leslie? Hey,
9: Kelly. Yeah, the IPO market has essentially fallen off a cliff this year. Just $2.4 billion worth of listings have hit U.S. exchanges in 2022. That's just 5% of the volume that we saw last year over this same time period, that according to DealLogic. In fact, this has been the worst three-month stretch for IPOs in 24 quarters since the beginning of 2016 when the prospect of rising interest rates ensnared the broader markets. Sound familiar? Well, it's not too dissimilar to what's going on now. Higher rates whipsawing the profitless growth tech companies that have come to epitomize the IPO market in recent years the Renaissance IPO ETF is more than 20% lower this year, although slightly positive today. Geopolitical and pandemic uncertainty are also creating headwinds for supply chains and inflation potentially creeping into the margins, if they have them, of companies otherwise looking to debut. All that creates opacity for how to value and trade new issues, so companies that can wait to go public are choosing to do so. Jabani was set to make its debut earlier this year. It's delayed. Reddit was planning on going public in March. Well, that didn't happen since it's now April. Digital bank Chime is reportedly punting its deal to the second half of the year as well. Instacart and Stripe were considered IPO candidates for the year, but they just had their valuation slashed by Fidelity. So the IPO market may remain practically to standstill until some of these macro factors change.
3: Cal. You know, I'm glad you reminded us because I forgot all of those companies. I remember talking about it in December. You know, <laughs> they're waiting in the wings. It's going to be a huge, you know, a huge moment. And um, it's been a quiet one instead. Leslie, thank you. Let's bring in Dan Primack now to talk more about this. If you think the IPOs have been tough, you should see what's going on with SPACs issuance plunging as the SEC also proposes a new set of rules to crack down on certain aspects of those deals. CNBC's post-SPAC deal trackers down 23 percent this year. Is the SPAC trend totally over or could we see a resurgence? Let's bring in Dan Primack now. He's the business editor at Axios. Dan, overall, what does this mean for companies either hoping to do a traditional IPO, a SPAC, you name it? It feels like the door has slammed shut.
10: The door's definitely slammed shut, and a big part of that, I think, is on the buy side, right? If you're a hedge fund or you're a mutual fund that likes buying high-growth tech stocks, why right now would you buy a new issue, whether it came via SPAC or whether it came via an IPO, when all those companies that Leslie was talking about that went public last year are mostly trading at pretty good discounts to where they went, if not where they went public, certainly where their highs were, by names you know that already have a couple quarters of uh, you know public earnings under their belt.
3: Yeah, so... If I'm a company that was counting on this exit process, what do I do now?
10: You wait. Uh, and for and for the private ones, not all of them, but for many of them, they raised enormous amounts of venture capital and private equity within the past 12 months. So so long as they weren't kind of playing a little bit of a kind of venture arbitrage Ponzi scheme whereby, you know, we're going to raise a bunch of money and then hire so many folks and it doesn't matter because we can raise again. So long as they were mildly conservative with their treasuries, they should have enough cash to get them through this.
3: Is the, the way the SEC is approaching SPACs now, spelling the end of that method as a go-public opportunity, or is it just a tweak and this will remain an option on the table for the foreseeable future?
10: I think it's a tweak. I think it's a depressive tweak. I I think it'll definitely cut down on the number, but I don't think it ends it entirely. You know, the big change that happens here relates, or or at least the proposal, relates to forward-looking guidance. Uh, If you're a company going public via SPAC, you've been able to show or Present data far in the future more than you could if you're a traditional IPO company. And so, if you're a pre commercial spaceship or flying cab company, that's been really helpful because you don't have any revenue this year, next year, the year after. This will equalize it. So, I think we'll see some or fewer of those kind of more speculative companies come to market.
3: And SPAC has been kind of a scarlet letter for the companies who participated in the process. A lot of them are frustrated that they've kind of been tarred with this uh, reputation now, undeservedly being lumped together as, you know, a a subpar quality name. What would it take to rid that association of the SPAC process? Um, I mean, a high-profile success story? What, What do you think?
10: Yeah, I think one or a couple. I mean, and what's been interesting to me about it is some of the bigger SPACs that we've seen over the past, you know, eight to 12 months that we thought were kind of the more solid companies uh, have, have struggled in the stock market. You think Grab, uh, you think Multiplan, you know, these big companies that have gotten gotten their butts kicked, basically, in the aftermarket. Yeah, I think we need to see a couple of these big ones succeed. And I also think the the DWAC, the uh, Digital World Acquisition, the Trump one, could be something that makes SPAC that scarlet letter even a little bit brighter as as it's continuing to struggle in terms of actually getting its product to market.
3: Do you think that the SPAC investors, not the the big guys, but you know the the general retail shareholder base, do you think they're just left with a bad taste in their mouth thinking this just isn't a great deal for them?
10: I think that's probably what it is, and by the way, it hasn't been. Uh, you know, you know, it's one thing if you pick and choose, like any you know trader. If you pick and choose and you pick well, good for you. And there have been some successful SPAC stories out there. But if you're buying these as some sort of bucket, let alone a you know quasi passive index, then then you've gotten hit pretty hard.
3: Final comment, Dan, on the overall IPO market. You know, a lot of these companies recruit, compensate, especially in a really tight labor market around the promise of a big payday uh, around that public listing. So what other options, either liquidity options or talent uh, retention options, do they have?
10: Uh, so there's a couple things. I mean, if you're a privately held company and you do have cash and you have interested investors, you can always do a secondary sale in the private market. Uh, you know, it's not going to be the same as saying to an employee, you know, you're going to be able to sell all of your stock on day one or on you know after three months. It's not the same. But you can help them take some shares off the table, help them pay the mortgage, pay off the car, et cetera. It's something we have seen companies do throughout kind of this bull market. And it makes sense if you've got the cash to do it, or maybe you've got an investor who wants, you know, five, $10 million worth more of stock that you can do and you can help out employees.
3: Yeah, the, the sizzle is gone, but they still want the steak, I guess, if that's how the sale yep. would go. Dan, good to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kelly. Dan Primack of Axios. Coming up, fewer cars on the lot, higher prices, and the chip shortage all weighing on automakers. Ford and GM down sharply so far this year. When can we expend, expect the the industry to return to normal? We have more on that ahead. As we head to break, here's a quick look at the Dow heat map, pretty evenly split today. Visa, Merck and Walmart, your biggest gainers. Intel and Walgreens weighing on the Dow. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are near session lows as we kick off the first day of the first month of the second quarter. The Dow is down 99 points. The low was minus 119. And here are some of the movers we're watching this hour. The transports, definitely, I mentioned this earlier on, they're the worst performers in the S&P after closing out March in the green. C.H. Robinson, J.B. Hunt, Old Dominion. Those are some of your laggards there. Uh, Old Dominion is down more than 6%. The Chinese internet names are making a comeback, though, on reports that Chinese authorities are prepared to give U.S. regulators full access to the audits of some major companies. Pinduoduo, Baidu, JD are leading. The K-Web is now up more than 5% this week. And as rates begin falling again, banks are one of the biggest underperformers this week. The KBE ETF on pace for its fourth negative week in five, in fact. And the social stocks outperforming the markets today with Snap leading the gains. That was Marianne Montaigne's pick yesterday. Piper Sandler today saying the company has compelling pockets of user growth in international markets. So there's mostly green on the screen except for Pinterest. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler.
7: Kelly, thanks very much. Here's your news update at this hour. The CDC is ending asylum restrictions aimed at preventing the spread of COVID. The Title 42 limits will be lifted on May 23rd. The CDC says the rules are no longer necessary. Critics of the policy, policy say it has been used as an excuse for the US to avoid international obligations to accept people fleeing persecution. In Pennsylvania, a police officer killed on duty yesterday was just a month from retirement. Lebanon City Police Lieutenant William Lebo and three other officers were responding to a domestic violence call. Two other officers were injured and remain hospitalized. A 34-year-old suspect named Travis Shawd was also killed in an exchange of gunfire. And in Michigan, jurors are hearing closing remarks uh, in the trial of four men accused of plotting to kidnap Governor Whitmer. A prosecutor says the men were filled with rage against the government and Whitmer's COVID restrictions. The defense lawyer says there was no plot and the defendants were under the influence of FBI agents and a key informant. On the news tonight, Russian troops have left the Chernobyl nuclear plant, but what state is it in? Is it dangerous? Find out with Chef Smith tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern. Kelly, back to you.
3: All right, Tyler, I'll see you soon. Still ahead with second quarter earnings just around the corner, my next guest says we're entering the hot zone for stocks. Danielle Shea joins us with her three buys and one bail next. Welcome back, everybody. It's the start of the second quarter. We're about to enter the hot zone for earnings. So we've got to get to our three buys and a bail today with Danielle Shea. So what are the buys and what is one name to stay away from? Danielle Shea is VP of options at Simpler Trading. And she joins us now. It's good to see you again, Danielle. Your first pick is actually DataDog. It's down about 14 percent this year. Why does this one flash by for you?
0: You know, Kelly, I like this one for a variety of reasons. Definitely the cybersecurity area, it can be incredibly volatile, right? But that can also be a good thing when you're looking for trades, especially shorter term trades. Now, when you look at Datadog in particular, it has done fantastic the past four quarters in a row. I mean, we've seen this ticker trade higher between 10 and 16% overnight on earnings. So when that occurs, generally what you're going to see is in about the 21-day time frame, 21 trading days prior to earnings, we're going to see a stock start to rally in anticipation in another positive report. So I like to get in prior to the report, ride the rally higher, and typically I get out before earnings because I'm just trading the momentum into
3: the report. Right. A lot of these are kind of short-term plays. So Datadog becomes the first one for you? Yes. And just to quickly follow up on that chip name or cloud name, I should say, you know, IT services and so forth. Is there anything you kind of other than a, a strong earnings report that tells you or any levels here that would tell you, you know, that it's a green light for the stock?
0: So, you know, I do like the technical pattern on this chart. On a daily chart right now, we're sitting up above the 200 simple, which is really my key line in the sand when I want to be bullish on any stock, especially in this market environment. So, when you look at Datadog, it's sitting up above the $125 price point. With this trade, I would like to get in right around current prices with a stop around 145, and I would be targeting 160 to 170 on the upside. So even though this is a volatile segment of the market, Um, I still think that the risk reward
3: is great. And about three weeks on the trade gives me plenty of time. All right. Let's move along to some energy plays because this one's been such a talker this year. One old school, one new school. The newer name is Enphase, the solar play. The shares are up about 11 percent this year. Uh, Why this name?
0: So this one has a similar pattern as well to Datadog. When you are looking at the way that this company has reported over the past couple quarters the last two quarters we traded higher by 18% and 23% overnight. And so what that shows is that this company has really been picking up steam. Yes again another volatile sector but when I'm looking at short term trades like this I do want something that's going to move because if there's not going to be a positive anticipation of the report you know what's the point right so when i'm looking at this ticker i love how it's sitting again up above the 200 simple on the daily chart we've got earnings coming up soon we're sitting above the 200 price point And I'm targeting about 220 on it because this stock will normally move
3: about 6 percent during this time frame. And Danielle, that kind of makes me wonder the setup going into this earnings season is so different from the last couple because the market was so deeply negative for the first couple of months. How does that change the hot zone or anything that you're kind of watching here in terms of sentiment and positioning?
0: Oh, it absolutely changes it. What I saw last quarter was that the amount of stocks that rallied into earnings was significantly lower than what we've seen really for the past several years. So what you want to do is you want to be focusing on those companies that have actually been able to produce fantastic reports in this market environment and those are pretty few and far between. So when I look at Inphase in particular and I look at the way that it traded last quarter I mean it was down on the lows even a week or two before earnings and it still rallied the week before going into the earnings report so if something can pick up steam like that um even in the market environment we're in, that's something that I want to focus on. That's
3: interesting because you're saying that in that earnings season was kind of a warning for how the markets overall traded yes. in the ensuing couple months and that there were names then that were – you're sticking with the winners there. You know, it's not like you're saying, hey, these names were down big last time. This time I think it's going to be the opposite.
0: No. I mean, honestly, last season, last earnings quarter, it was just destructive in so many ways. And actually – What I started looking for last quarter and what I've been looking for this quarter are companies that did get destroyed on earnings and I'm looking for those to continue to go further so (laughs) on one hand you know there are some shining stars where we can look for that bullish momentum but there's also a ton of stocks that I think are going to fall even
3: further on more disappointment. Wow all right that's uh, quite a warning. Before we get to your bail, though, let's talk about one more stock that also in the energy space, more of the old school play. You like Exxon here. It's already up 35 percent this year, but you think there's more room to run.
0: So I do like Exxon here. And the reason for that is because when I'm looking for this setup going into earnings, I like to focus on the strong sectors of the market, because when you have that wind at your back, Um, that can really help carry the trades forward. And so while Exxon is already up, it has pulled back in the last two weeks or so, and it's sitting above a key area of support about the $80 price point. You have crude that obviously, you know, despite what President Biden is trying to do, very strong uh, with crude prices, energy segment is strong. And with Exxon, I'm just looking at this as a smaller trade Um, I'm not buying shares at this level, but I do like just getting into the trade at current prices and trading it up into about 85 to 88 with a stop below 80. So for me, that's a great risk reward for, you know, something that's going to last about three weeks.
3: Fair enough. I I take your caveats about, you know, it may not be for everybody. All right. Finally, let's get to your bail today. Uh, I'll just go ahead and reveal it's up 5% this week. So, you know, it's got some traction. But Uber down 15% this year, and 35% it continues to languish way below its IPO price.
0: So Kelly, I love looking for short candidates when they're up, and that's exactly why I picked Uber. When you look at Uber, the downtrend is, well, been in a downtrend for quite a while, right? But the thing that I love the most about it is the hot zone statistics. So when you look at the course of the last year on Uber, Uber falls on average about 10% during the hot zone and so when I'm looking at that I also see the fact that it did rally that gives me a great entry point. Um, I just don't see any positive anticipation for this report. They haven't done well on earnings they have so many headwinds you know you have. A uh, new legislation you have gas prices you have the fact that they have increased their prices and their products have gone down. Um, in value I personally think <laughs> but. I just think there's way too many headwinds for Uber. And I think it's a great short here going into earnings because I just don't think that anyone can possibly
3: anticipate a positive report for them. So I think it's a great short term trade. All right. There are the three buys and a bail into earnings season. We'll have a lot more to comb through as that plays out, obviously. Danielle, thank you for all your time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Danielle Shea. Up next, votes in the unionization efforts at Amazon warehouses in Alabama and New York. Those votes are in. We'll hear directly from Amazon about those outcomes next. Shares clinging on to a third of a percent gain. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. The votes in the Amazon unionization efforts are in. And at the company's Staten Island facility, employees have chosen the union path. Deirdre Bosa is here with all the latest for us. Deirdre?
8: Kelly, we just got a response from Amazon to that vote. The statement reads, quote, we are disappointed with the outcome of the election because we believe having a direct relationship with the company is best for our employees. We are evaluating our options, including filing objections based on the inappropriate and undue influence by the NLRB that we and others witnessed in this election. So far, Kelly, investors, they are shrugging this vote off and perhaps because they know that this battle isn't over. And that's what the statement is basically telling us Amazon shares have continued to trade in a tight range, staying staying in positive territory after those results. That could change, though, as investors sort through the potential implications for Amazon's famously efficient logistics chain and current labor model, which is the backbone of that prime ecosystem. Now, the union drive was won by roughly 10 percentage points, which may come as a surprise since another vote last spring in Alabama went overwhelmingly in Amazon's favor, with one win under organizers' belt, Other warehouses could be encouraged. Look at what happened over at Starbucks. A string of union victories quickly followed the first one. And moreover, shares since then have been pressured. At Amazon, the stakes are arguably even larger. This vote affects more than 8,300 workers at that particular warehouse. On the other hand, though, as we heard in that statement, Kelly, there are things that Amazon can do, like appeal the vote. They can also complicate and draw out negotiations to make the argument that unions don't work. This has been an extremely hard fought and sometimes dirty fight so far. So there's almost certainly going to be more.
3: Yeah, it feels like their coming of age moment. You know, every big tech company has had to contend with this, whether it's Apple and all the various regulations for it and the social giants and uh, Alphabet. And so this is going to be the way that Amazon grows up, so to speak. How many more of these votes should we expect? And what's Andy Jassy's kind of posture been so far?
8: Well, if you remember, Kelly, a few years ago when Bezos was on his way to step down from CEO, his annual letter had a different, had a bit of a change in tone. In it, he said that they wanted to be America's number one employer. Maybe it was the world's number one employer. So their priorities have shifted a little bit from being obsessed with the customer to look to different regulators, like labor unions, like their workforce, like regulators, like lawmakers. Uh, so this is certainly a different Amazon that we are seeing. And this is the biggest labor threat that we have seen on U.S. soil. So what Andy Jassy does from here, we'll see, as we heard from that statement, we think that this is going to be sort of a hard-fought b- battle. This is not... Uh, determined by any ch- any means. Um, there's another vote expected next month, Kelly, in Brooklyn.
3: So you're already kind of seeing the dominoes fall. Absolutely. Uh, much like at Starbucks. Deirdre, thanks. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. Up next, today's auto sales numbers show the chip shortage driving a divergence. We will explain that next. Welcome back, everybody. Checking on the chip stocks lower today. The SMH has fallen more than 13 percent over the past three months, in part as the chip shortage continues, but in part over concerns that may not last forever. Now, it has certainly been pressuring auto sales. Phil LeBeau, in fact, is here now with the latest numbers. Phil?
11: Kelly, you see the uh, pressure in the Q1 numbers, which we knew they would be bad, and they pretty much came in as expected. General Motors down 20.1%, Toyota down 14.7%, Hyundai up 1.4%. But generally speaking, you have a quarter where overall sales down 15% for the industry here in the U.S., Remember, auto inventories remain low. And why do they remain low? Because the supply of chips is just not replenished to the level that it was before the pandemic. And as a result, you see a gradual improvement in chip supply, but we still see some intermittent stoppages in production. Good example, Ford. Today, uh, they or yesterday, they announced that they're going to be suspending production next week at the Flat Rock, Michigan plant. That's where they build the Mustang. And then you take a look at General Motors. It is going to be shutting down the Indiana truck plants where they build their pickup trucks. Going to be shut down the week of April 4th, the week of April 11th. And finally, as you take a look at Tesla, I know people are saying, well, wait a second, you got Q1 numbers. Where's Tesla? Tesla. We will likely get those tomorrow or Sunday. The expectation is for about 315,000 vehicles to be delivered. We'll see how close they come to that, or if they move past that, which some people are expecting. Kelly,
3: and it, you know, would be notable because while they've all had to contend with chip shortages, like you said, they've not. The fact that any have succeeded at all shows that uh, the others well, it didn't perhaps uh, approach this as strategically or respond as strategically as they might have hoped to. Yeah.
11: Yeah. But but let's be clear here. There's very few examples of an automaker where you can say they did 100 percent better than everybody else. Some, like Tesla, handled it better in the beginning. But even Elon Musk has said the chip shortage has impacted their production. Others have been at times not doing as well. At other times, they've improved. It has not been a smooth ride for any of the automakers around the world.
3: No, that's for sure. Phil, we appreciate it. Our Phil LeBeau. With all of those headwinds that Phil just mentioned, what is the outlook for autos heading into the next quarter? Will these issues abate? Are we normalizing or not? With us now is Michael Ward. He's an auto analyst at Benchmark. Michael, it's good to see you again. And uh, are we post-pandemic or, or not? It feels like we're kind of in this this period of perhaps permanent change.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, it's good to be on. Um, we're not post-pandemic yet. I think as still mentioned inventory still remain very constrained you start you are starting to see some positive change in sales just on a daily rate basis it looks like march will be up you know, 10 or 12% uh from february so you're seeing some improvement but the chip supply has not been replenished and as a result you know production just can't keep keep up with the pace of sales and so there is optimism for the second half but uh you're you're still heading in the right direction but still constrained
3: Yeah, and we see the traditional automakers kind of unable to fill those orders at the same time demand is surging for EVs. uh, But even the EV makers are struggling to fill those orders, too, for the most part.
2: Yes, and the EV makers, remember, like Tesla's only a fraction of the production of General Motors report. And so you have a bigger pie to split. General Motors, the way they've allocated the chips, the Arlington, Texas plant, which is the most profitable auto plant in the world, has not missed a day of production. And so it depends on where you're allocating It is concerning when you see Ford and GM shutting down truck production because that, too, they're very profitable plants.
3: Yeah. What would you say about, you know, we've watched shares of Ford and GM struggle a little bit this year. And and what you're saying means that this shortage is going to last and they're going to have trouble, you know, filling orders for some time. When can we expect that to change?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest thing that I look at, I've followed the industry for 40 years. And this is the first time coming out of a downturn with General Motors and Ford, where you did not need to restructure costs, you do not need to restructure product or revenue, and you don't need to restructure the balance sheets. So these companies are incredibly well positioned to benefit from any upcycle. And when you look at under, underlying demand drivers, the replacement of older vehicles, new drivers coming into the market, the, the population age and the millennial group, the signs are more bullish than they've been in the 40 years that i follow followed the group, and that's why I'm positive on the stocks.
5: Well, I
3: see someone else wants to get into this conversation here. Uh, uh, <laughs>
2: Dogs, so they, I don't know what's them, but it might be my talk about the auto stocks.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Michael, thanks for your time today. We'll have you back soon. Thanks very much, Michael Ward. Still ahead. See you later. Salaries and bye-bye bonuses. Kate Rooney outside the New York Stock Exchange with details on a Wall Street talent exodus. Kate?
12: Hey, Kelly, that's right. We're here in downtown Manhattan, where some of the biggest banks in the world are beefing up their cryptocurrency teams. But startups are now trying to compete for some of that top talent. We'll bring you inside the debate. Stay in Wall Street or go full-time crypto at a startup. More on that on The Exchange after this break. Welcome back, everybody.
3: Mainstream banks are coming around to crypto, but the pivot isn't enough to keep them from uh, having their employees leave for faster and greener pastures. Kate Rooney is outside the New York Stock Exchange with details on this crypto brain drain Wall Street's experiencing, Kate.
12: Hey, Kelly, that's right. Some of the big big bulge bracket names have been hiring and they're beefing up their cryptocurrency team so far. We've seen that lately. They argue that they've got the scale, they've got the impact, but the startups are also trying to compete for some of that talent. And people that have left Wall Street to go to some of these faster moving startups say they're looking for that fast moving pace. They're looking for a slightly different culture. And they say there's potentially more upside at a startup at this point. JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs are all among the banks with dedicated crypto teams. Data from LinkedIn shows the pace of crypto hiring at financial firms quadrupled from 2015 to 2021 and jumped 40% roughly in the first half of last year. I spoke to Omar Farouk. He's the CEO of Onyx, that's JP Morgan's blockchain group. He tells me operating within a Wall Street bank often means moving slower, but the upside of having JP Morgan's weight behind a project makes up for that.
10: I think. Sometimes the upsides of being an institution of our scale and size and sort of operating mechanic is way more important than whatever the downsides might be by virtue of you know, having to look at all the sort of regulation or the controls that exist.
12: Other folks I've talked to have found the pace of innovation within a bank can also be frustrating. Justin Schmidt is the former head of digital asset markets at Goldman Sachs. He's now head of strategy at Talos he tells me he's learned a lot from being a, quote, cog in the machine at a bank. And while he walked away from that big salary and bonus, he says there's also career risk in staying.
11: Risk is a sort of multi-dimensional thing. Uh, so inherently, you're taking brand risk, right? Goldman is one of the storied institutions of Wall Street. Um, and then I think you also take a risk by staying at some place that is more traditional because, and I I very firmly believe this, this is a generational change, and there's a generational opportunity here in what's happening, both from an infrastructure perspective, from new assets that are being created, and even how all these things interact.
12: And Kelly, the Wall Street banks are competing with startups, but you've also got big tech now competing for talent. So competition really coming from everywhere. Back to you. Yeah, and it's
3: shaking up the plans and investments people are making as well. Like, for instance, do you need to have an MBA, Ivy League education?
12: It's interesting. We also spoke to uh, MC Ladder. She's a former managing director at BlackRock. She's got an MBA from Harvard, and she said it's really not a prerequisite when it comes to some of these crypto startups. She said some of the smartest people at the firm that they've hired at Uniswap, where she now works. She says they're self-taught, they're computer scientists, and in some cases, they're crypto influencers that she's met on Twitter. So really some unconventional hiring. You don't need the Ivy Ivy League education at this point or an MBA. It's really a new type of resume that they're looking at.
3: Computer science PhD doesn't hurt. That's some of the people I know. Uh, That's a little bit different (laughs) story, though. Kate, great stuff. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Our Kate Rooney in downtown Manhattan. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
1: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.